Talks from the National Archives. This talk, presented by Dominic Sandbrook, is called Who Dares Wins? Britain from 1979 to 1982. It was recorded on Thursday, the 10th of October, 2019, at the National Archives, Kew. to introduce Dominic Sandbrook to you, acclaimed historian of modern Britain. He's here to talk to us about the fifth book in his series on the post-1950 era, Who Dares Wins, covering the period 1979 to 1982. Thank you very much. <coughs> so, the early 1980s. Uh, Margaret Thatcher and Michael Foote, Adam Ant and Kate Bush, Steve Davis and Alex Higgins, the Human League in Spandau Ballet, Delia Smith, Kevin Keegan, Jeffrey Archer, where do you start? Well, I thought it would be fun to start by looking at Britain as others saw us. And um, in particular, I wanted to start with it. You'll see where this elaborate joke is going. Um, I wanted to start with an American couple who arrived in England in March 1979, flew into Heathrow, drove down the motorway, and checked into their seaside hotel. And by an extraordinary coincidence, we happen to have a photograph of them <laughs> checking into reception right here. So this is Waldorf Salad from uh, the second series of Fawlty Towers, which was transmitted in March 1979. Uh, here you have Mr. and Mrs. Hamilton. Uh, they pitch up. Uh, as some of you will remember, they're exhausted. Mr. Hamilton um, wants a drink and then gets something to eat. Basil says, not possible, the chef does actually stop at nine. So Mr. Hamilton bribes him 30 pounds, um, this Mickey Mouse money, as he calls it, to keep the chef on. Everything goes horribly wrong. Mr. Hamilton orders a screwdriver, and Basil doesn't know what it is. Uh, Mr. Hamilton orders, orders a Waldorf salad, and Basil says, we're just out of Waldorf's. Um, <laughs> And finally, Mr. Hamilton loses his temper and he says, what the hell's wrong with this country? You can't get a drink after three, you can't eat after nine. Is the war still on? Later on, at the end of the episode, he really loses it. And he grabs Basil by the lapels and he says to him, I'm telling you that this place is the crummiest, shoddiest, worst-run hotel in the whole of Western Europe. And at that, the major who's been listening butts in and says, no, no, I won't have that. There's a place in Eastbourne. <laughs> and of course, what's funny about this is that it was so recognisable. It was precisely what a lot of people recognised from British sort of hotel hospitality at the turn of the 1980s. But the other interesting thing is that Fawlty Towers isn't just a story about a hotel. It's a kind of, the hotel is a metaphor for Britain itself. There's a sort of cross-section of society among the guests. And Basil is this sort of Frankenstein's monster of middle-class anxieties in the course of the 1970s, sort of forever thundering about it's bloody Wilson and it's the unions and, and all this sort of stuff. And actually that view of Britain as Fawlty Towers, as the crummiest, shoddiest, worst-run hotel in the whole of Western Europe, was funny precisely because it was how so many people thought about Britain uh, at the end of the 1970s. In 1975, Henry Kissinger 
was captured in a White House transcript telling President Gerald Ford, Britain, he said, has become a tragedy, begging, borrowing, stealing until North Sea oil comes in. That Britain has become such a scrounger is a disgrace. Three years later, the New York Times ran one of the endless stories that it ran in the 1970s, and indeed still runs today, about what a terrible place Britain was, and its politics were so messy and shambolic and all the rest of it. And it quoted uh, a Dutch official with the European Economic Community, who said, Britain is fundamentally less able to develop than other countries. It's a country that simply doesn't work very well. Obviously, you'd never hear a Dutch official saying that now. And you know, this was very common. This was how people abroad constantly talked about Britain. And there is an irony here, because as those of you who lived in the 1970s and 1980s will know, most people at the turn of the 1980s were better off than they'd ever been. They led longer, healthier, more colorful, uh, more exciting, more interesting lives with greater possibility and, and greater opportunities than ever. And yet, this sort of Fawlty Towers view of Britain did reflect, I think, a genuine reality. In the last 12 years or so, before this um, program was screened, Britain had gone through the devaluation of the pound in 1967, the shock of the Heath uh, government's endless battles with the, with the unions, the two minor strikes, the three-day week, the energy crisis of 1973 and 1974, two elections in 1974, inflation at 27% in August 1975, uh, a record bailout from the International Monetary Fund in 1976, and the winter of discontent to cap it all off in 1978-79. And of course, all the time in the background was the soundtrack of the sectarian violence in Northern Ireland, the sort of ultimate symbol of a United Kingdom that seemed to be tearing itself apart. So it's not surprising that people abroad thought this or that people thought it at home as well. In the summer of 1979, Britain's ambassador to Paris, Sir Nicholas Henderson, sent a, a sort of valedictory dispatch to the Foreign Office on his retirement from the embassy in Paris. And it was leaked to The Economist. And it was leaked because it was so incendiary. The title was Britain's Decline, Its Causes and Consequences. Today, Henderson wrote, we are not only no longer a world power, we are not in the first rank even as a European one. You only have to move about Western Europe nowadays to realise how poor and unproud the British have become in relation to their neighbours. It shows in the look of our towns, in our airports, in our hospitals, and in our local amenities. It's painfully apparent, he said, in much of our railway system. Now, these are, of course, very familiar complaints. It's, our, our love of self-flagellation has not um, deserted us in the intervening period. But I think, although decline has been an obsession for Britain for more than 100 years, this was the sort of absolute nadir, or the, or the high point, if you like, of national self-flagellation and introspection. We'd lost our empire. We'd lost our manufacturing supremacy. We'd entered the European community in 1973, and I think there was a, a, a general sense of unease and kind of malaise. And this, of course, was what Margaret Thatcher had largely been elected to fix. So here you have two visions of her. Uh, the one, if some of you went to the talk that I gave about the, about the Cold War earlier this year, you might recognize that Sunday Times image. It's such a good picture. I, 
I saw nothing wrong with using it twice. And this is um, the Daily Express encouraging people to, to vote for her in 1979. Now, we could spend the next eight hours arguing about Mrs. Thatcher, um, but I really want to just say three things about her. The first is how important that idea of decline, I think, was to her and to her political philosophy. I think it was the absolute sort of central starting point for everything that she, that she sort of presented to the public when she stood as Prime Minister in 1979. A couple of days before Election Day, she gave an interview to the BBC's Robin Day, and he asked her what she, he was asking what she really believed in, what she really stood for, and her answer speaks volumes. I can't bear Britain in decline, I just can't, she said. We who either defeated or rescued half Europe, who kept half Europe free when otherwise it would be in chains, and look at us now. And that, I think, absolutely underpinned everything she believed in, all the sort of free market stuff, the small state, all of that stuff was a means to an end, and the end was reversing Britain's decline and, to coin a phrase, making Britain great again. The second thing that I think is really important about her, and I think is, is captured to some extent by the picture on the, on the right, is what makes her unusual from the other politicians that had preceded her, from the Harold Wilsons, the Ted Heaths, Jim Callaghan, and so on, is that she was so unrepentantly moralistic. So there was a sort of moral fervor. There was um, a stridency, uh, an enthusiasm for ideas and for confrontation that marked her out as different from the politicians who dominated Britain in the years of consensus from the 1950s onwards. I'm in politics, she once said, in an interview with the Times, I'm in politics because of the conflict between good and evil, and I believe that in the end, good will triumph. Now, that's just not the kind of thing that you can imagine Harold Wilson or Ted Heath saying. They never talked about good and evil. Why? Where does it come from? Well, I think the answer is obvious. Mrs. Thatcher was much more religious than they were. In fact, she was unusually religious by post-war British standards. So she'd been brought up in a strict Methodist household, she had to go to chapel multiple times on Sundays when she was a girl. And I think the language of the kind of Methodist Sunday school and the chapel had, as it, as it were, entered into her soul. So that she was, very, she was very comfortable and familiar with that kind of moralistic language. Which, of course, is one of the things that endeared her to her supporters and that horrified her critics. You know, there are... In her archives, there were all these speech notes that she made for her party conference speeches. And there would be this endless stuff about what is society, what is the moral responsibility of the individual, almost like sermon notes that she would write out. And she would give them to her speechwriters, and they would cut <laughs> all of it um, because they wanted her to sort of give a much more conventional speech. But that was the direction in which her instincts lay. And that made her different, I think from most other politicians, and it's one of the reasons why I think people found it easy to hate her, because she cast herself as this sort of confrontational holy warrior. And the third thing I think that's really interesting about her, and that strikes me particularly more recently, um, obviously writing this book, Who Dares Wins, during the sort of Brexit debate, is her sense of British exceptionalism. I think that also marked her out as different from Wilson and Heath and all these characters. A quotation from another interview that she gave to Robin Day. Britain, she said, is not just another country. It has never been just another country. We would not have grown into an empire if we were just another European country 
with the size and strength that we were. It was Britain that stood when everyone else surrendered. And this sort of stuff, the empire, the Second World War. Remember, she's somebody who's absolutely stamped by the um, experience of wartime, having lived through it as a, as a very young woman. That, I think, is central to her sense of Britain and its place in the world. She believes that Britain has a unique history and an exceptional destiny. But because of the mismanagement, this is how she would put it, because of the mismanagement of Britain's politics and economy since the Second World War, we have sunk into this apparently interminable decline and that it is her role to reverse it. Now, of course, lots of people, even in her own cabinet, would have found this off-putting, simplistic, however you like to put it. But clearly among the public, this resonated. And that explains perhaps why she was able to reach across a lot of class boundaries uh, in a way that previous Tories had found it difficult to do. Now, there is, of course, one other thing about Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, she was, of course, a woman. Now, this was an age of strong, decisive, uh, impressive women, three of whom you have on the screen here. Um, so for those of you who don't know, surely everybody knows who these people are. Uh, this is Penelope Keith Audrey, as Audrey Forbes Hamilton into The Man of Orn. Uh, there you have um, Stephanie Turner in uh, Juliet Bravo. Uh, so it's a policewoman making her way in a sort of male-dominated force. And this, my favourite, is uh, the Supreme Commander of the Galactic Federation, Servalan, in Blake 7, which came to an end in 1981. That's uh, one of the great memories of my uh, childhood. And what all these three women have in common is that uh, in 1980, the Guardian Diary, then edited by Alan Rusbridger, um, invited its readers to uh, suggest nicknames for the Prime Minister, uh, inspired by TV characters. And the most popular was Servalan, uh, down at the bottom. But of course what this tells you you know, there, there are strong women everywhere in the culture of the early 1980s. And that tells you that Mrs. Thatcher, although we often see her as standing alone, she's actually a symptom. She's a, she's a reflection of a much deeper trend, which is the enormous expansion in the horizons and opportunities for British women. So by the time she took office, six out of ten adult British women were working, which was a higher proportion than in any other European country outside Scandinavia. Now, she was to encounter, and as they would know, for all the success of sort of female entrepreneurs like Anita Roddick and the first female heads of companies and sort of doctors, solicitors, women on the floor of the stock exchange and so on, for all that, prejudice still died hard. As late as 1983, a crematorium in Golders Green sacked a um, bereavement advisor, I think she was called, who had the effrontery to come to work wearing a trouser suit. And the, the manager of the crematorium said that he regarded trousers on women as akin to see-through blouses and something <laughs> that, and something that uh, bereaved families would find off-putting. She took the case to an industrial tribunal, and the industrial tribunal, you'll be um, perhaps unsurprised to know, uh, ruled against her said he was perfectly within his, within his rights. There's also a case that I talk about in the book of a, a school outside Reading where six, the teachers were banned from wearing trousers and a large comprehensive school 
and six women teachers decided one day to, um, to, to wear trousers and the headmaster contrived to lock them in a classroom, presumably for the safety of the children and only let them out when the children had, had left and there was this sort of huge battle about it. But they eventually, the <coughs> teaching unions and the council sort of mediated and there was some sort of compromise, I'm not exactly sure what it was, maybe one trouser and a bit of a skirt or something. But clearly, you know, these things were, they sound trivial, but they reflect the sort of social and cultural currents of life at the beginning of the 1980s. And for working women, I think, it, what, appearance mattered because... There was no universally accepted office uniform for women, as there was for men. It's very telling that when Mrs Thatcher was um, leader of the opposition, interviewers often said, what will you wear when you're prime minister? Because, of course, they had no, they had no precedent for a, a democratically elected female head of government in a major Western democracy. And she, I think, felt under immense pressure. She went on a, a sort of crash diet before the 1979 election because she was so conscious that, you know, it's perfectly all right for Ted Heath to put on weight or Harold Wilson to look shabby or James Callaghan when he came into number 10 for the first time as Prime Minister to have his tie tucked into his trousers. But for Mrs Thatcher to have one hair out of place would immediately invite press commentary. This is The Sun in 1979. Who would want a dowdy female fatty for Prime Minister? After all, if a person can't control her weight, doesn't it occur to everybody that she may not be able to control other more important things? <laughs> now, The Sun would never have dreamt of saying that about um, Ted Heath, and I have to say, The Sun is not unusual in that regard. And you might think that's just The Sun being feral, but actually the newspapers generally said that about... All the newspapers said that about female politicians, Shirley Williams in particular the word that was most often used to describe her in the press in the early 80s was scruffy. People never said she's a single mother bringing up a teenage daughter on her own and also trying to juggle a political career. They just said she's late and she looks like a mess. And ordinary readers would often write in and say, I would never vote for Mrs Williams as Prime Minister because I can look good, why can't she? So you see how the sort of pressures that women uh, were under... And and I think that's reflected as well in the abuse that Mrs. Thatcher got throughout her career. Of course, people disliked her for all kinds of political reasons. But when you look at the, the nicknames that were thrown at her, including those used inside the House of Commons, the great she-elephant, Attila the hen, the Catherine the Great of Finchley, the Maggie Toller, that bloody woman, the one thing that comes through every single one is the fact that she's a woman. It's always mentioned. When she died in 2013... What was the song that her critics tried to propel up the charts? Ding dong, the witch is dead. And I think when people look back at her in the future, that will strike them more and more, I think. More women working than ever before raises the obvious question. If um, so many women are going out to work, both sort of adults in the household coming back exhausted from the office, who's going to cook the evening meal? And the answer, of course, is Jimmy Tarbuck. <laughs> So, <laughs> yes, why Jimmy Tarbuck is being used by Sharp to advertise their microwave, who knows? But the important thing here is the microwave. It's not, um, it's not Tarby. Britain was a country that was in love with microwaves in the early 1980s. Demand for microwaves was higher in Britain than in the rest of Europe put together than in every other European country. Now, that can tell you numerous things. Uh, the standard of British cookery. Um, it can tell you about 
the obsession with convenience, with speed and so on. But it also obviously reflects the fact that so many women are working, that people simply don't have the time to sit around at home all afternoon or, st or stand around at home preparing the evening meal, that speed and sort of spontaneity are of the essence. In fact, microwaves are so popular that at the turn of the 1980s, The Guardian published a guide to microwave cookery, explaining that you could, for example, and I quote, have a trout cooked to perfection and covered with melted butter and almonds in just eight minutes. And um, if you get nothing else from this talk, I'd like to leave you with a couple of tips from The Guardian's Guide to Microwave Cookery that you may find useful when you return home. To make a cup of tea, for instance, simply put the tea bag in a cup of water and microwave. To improve the taste of your cream crackers, as if they need improving, <laughs> to improve the taste of your cream crackers, says the, uh, micro says the microwave cookery guide, heat them for a few minutes in the microwave. <laughs> a few minutes. <laughs> and to brighten up your vegetables, you should pop a slice of processed cheese on top and melt in the microwave for a few seconds. So, don't claim that you've come away with nothing. Now, all this, of course, reflected a much wider trend. These were years of obviously increasing home ownership. Home ownership in Britain was already unusually high by European standards, but boosted further by Mrs. Thatcher's policy of selling council houses to their tenants. They, these are years of increasing kind of domesticity more generally. People are spending more time at home. They're spending more money than almost anybody else in Europe on conservatories, patios, garages, rockeries, loft conversions, all these things that in the 1950s or so would have been perceived as luxuries, but are becoming more and more mainstream. And I, this, I think, reflects a society that is, in the 1980s, turning inward, that is turning its back on the old forms of collective entertainment, on the pub, on the church, on going to the football match on Saturdays and so on, and turning inwards into the home. And I think in an age of domesticity and individualism, it makes sense that the first woman prime minister, somebody who described herself as just an ordinary housewife and mother, was so perfectly placed to capitalise on the new social trends of the day. But the gadget that I think really defined this period, and for which I think this period will be remembered long after all the political figures are forgotten, is of course the computer. So it's extraordinary to think that in, let's say, 1975, most people would never knowingly have laid eyes on a computer. I mean, they might have been in the same room as one, but they might not have been aware of it. They certainly would have, it's unlikely that they would have seen one being used in their own workplace. But by 1985, computers are becoming ubiquitous. So it's a very quick turnaround. This computer here is certainly the one that I was familiar with as a boy. This is the BBC Micro that was used in schools. But the, the man who really became the face of the computer boom in Britain was Clive Sinclair. Now, Sinclair had made his name in the 70s with the first cheap po pocket calculator. And um, in 1979, he read an article in the Financial Times that said, one day, sometimes in some years in the future, somebody will make a computer that costs less than £100. And he said to his chief engineer, I want us to do it within months. See if we can do it. And in January 1980, 
The result went on sale. It was the ZX80. It cost £99, and uh, it sold 100,000 units, which was then unprecedented. Now, it was a terrible computer. It couldn't really do anything. And by today's standard, I mean, it was infinitely, infinitely less powerful than the most antiquated sort of brick-like mobile phone. And yet, it represented the start of a kind of... Just, I don't think I'm overaking it by calling it a kind of technological revolution, certainly within the household. So it paved the way for the ZX81 and then the ZX Spectrum, which he released in the spring of 1982 and sold two and a half million units, which then unprecedented and still an all-time record for a British-made computer. And actually, by 1982, Britain out of nowhere had the highest rate of computer ownership in the world. So higher than Japan, higher than West Germany, uh, even than the United States. Why? I think two reasons. One, because the Thatcher government really went for computers in a big way. In the archives here, there's a, um, an extraordinary memorandum sent by Sir Keith Joseph, Mrs. Thatcher's ideological mentor, to her in 1979. He says, effectively, he says, you know, we, we've said we're going to cut off all this industrial aid and make businesses stand on their own two feet, but there's one sector that should be different. And that's computers. Because he says, in its own way, this will be as important as was the steam engine. We should put money into this, otherwise we'll be left behind. And what they did was this, I mean, the main thing they did was this education program that every school in Britain would have its own computer. Now, if you're my age, you'll know that one computer in a school is, is not many. But um, and so you have scenes like this, and probably behind these children, there's about 100 other children. <laughs> but... This mattered, and it got people used to the idea of using computers. And it was the dawn of what became the British software industry, which is a huge industry um, today. And the other thing of, that, that promoted computers was the BBC. So the BBC launched a computer literacy program in 1982. It had a computer program on BBC Two that about six million people watched every week. And they had their own computer that was picked as the main school computer. And that this, you know, we often think of the 1980s as the heyday private enterprise, but here you actually have something being driven by the public sector, by government and by the state broadcaster, and, by, and being also interestingly driven by the anxieties of parents. I think that's what really nobody could have foreseen in the 1970s, when computers were seen as the province of sort of boffins and Americans and so on. Sinclair's genius was that he marketed computers as products for children, and without which your children would sink in the competitive new world of the 1980s. We live in an age of computers, one of the adverts said. Coming to terms with them is part of coming to terms with the 20th century. And the sort of message to parents in the adverts was always, if you don't get a computer, your children will, will feel left behind. I mean, I can remember pestering and badgering my parents to get a BBC Micro, so basically so that I could play games on it by saying, oh, there's all these fantastic educational programs. Utterly insincere, of course. <laughs> I, but, I mean, this was the sort of, um, the sort of standard uh, ritual in households up and down the land. Now, interestingly, even at this very early stage, people were aware of what you might call the dangers. So ITV had a series called The Mighty Micro, a documentary series about what this would do. And the final episode ended with these words. Increasingly, said the presenter, the computer will draw you into an obsessive embrace where the world comes to you in your home. With the computer as an increasingly interesting and useful companion, could the factories and office blocks empty, commuter lines fall silent 
as we retreat into our own private universe. So we can hardly say that we weren't warned. But of course, one danger of computers uh, loomed larger than any other, and that's unemployment. The single biggest thing that people most feared uh, about the new technology was that it would put people out of work, as of course it did. Now, unemployment had been gathering strength as an issue in Britain for 10 years before Mrs. Thatcher came to power. It had passed 1 million at the beginning of 1972. It had almost gone up to 1.5 million in the late 1970s. But what nobody anticipated was the huge rush of unemployment towards 4 million or so in the first half of the 1980s. And here you have two, you know, the Dole Q Britain headline in the uh, Daily Mirror and Time magazine. Again, the, the, the way the world perceives Britain and the extent to which the issue has, was already by this stage, so this is 1981, I think, is, al is already personalised. It's already Thatcherized, if you like, that the issue is presented and framed within the sort of Thatcher-shaped lens. Now, I think what you can say now is that the unemployment of the 80s was part of a, a much bigger process. The coming to terms with globalisation, with the decline of manufacturing, the end of heavy industry and so on, and that therefore, to some extent, it was inevitable. Every major Western country has gone through uh, high unemployment. In France, for example, youth unemployment is still 20-25%, and Britain was not alone. However, what you also have to say is that Mrs. Thatcher undoubtedly made it much, much worse. It was far worse in Britain than any other European country at the beginning of the 1980s, and that was a result of her stringent policies against inflation by relying on high interest rates to squeeze inflation out of the system at a time when the pound was already very highly valued as a result of North Sea oil. She made it virtually impossible for British manufacturers to sell their goods abroad. So in 1981, 82, 83, unemployment was double, treble, quadruple in Britain what it was in West Germany, France, Italy, the Netherlands and so on. I think the only European country that had unemployment remotely comparable to Britain's was Belgium, another country that relied, very densely populated that relied a lot on heavy industry. And for that reason, it's understandable that Mrs. Thatcher became such a scapegoat, as you see in the time image. I think the one other element in, in Mrs. Thatcher being, as it were, a scapegoat is her gender. A lot of the people who lost their jobs and became sort of emblems of unemployment were working-class men, a sort of stereotypical men who had followed their father into the, into the mine or into the factory and now saw their entire um, industrial landscape crumbling around them. And it was obviously very tempting to say, it's that woman who's done it, a woman who has no sympathy with me, my community, my way of life, and so on. And I often wonder, had she not been a woman, and had she not been so obviously a kind of strident Tory woman, would the issue have become as personalised as it did? The third point I make about unemployment is this. We know now that everybody else would go through this eventually. Detroit, the coal mines of France, you know, factories across the Western world and so on. But people didn't know that then. They didn't know that in the early 1980s. So they saw it as part of a, much, of a, of a specifically British story. They saw it as the latest symptom of a uniquely British disease, a kind of systemic 
national failure, going back decades to the end of the British Empire, the end of the Second World War, and so on. And so it sort of formed part of almost like that sort of faulty towers view of Britain, a failing country that is shedding jobs month after month after month and is heading further and further down the drain. And of course what brought that to its nadir was the urban riots of the summer of 1981. Riots on a scale that had not been seen in Britain before in the 20th century. So this image is from uh, Brixton, and of course it was followed by the riots in Toxteth and Mossside and so on in the summer of 1981. And we know now, again, that these riots had complicated causes, and that if there's one re reasonably common factor, it's the build-up year after year of animosity between immigrant communities and the police, particularly in London, the Metropolitan Police. But it's interesting that at the time, people didn't really see it that way. When the public were asked what they thought the riots, what had caused the riots, the most common answer was <coughs> unemployment, so they're simply a result of the economic conditions. And the second most common answer was people said they're the fault of immigrants themselves. Very few people blamed the police. It's striking that even in the Labour opposition, there was very little criticism of the police. Un understandably, I suppose, the opposition parties pr preferred to blame Mrs Thatcher. But the riots were seen as part of that same story, a story of sort of national decline, of a kind of national breakdown, the symptoms of which were as much moral and cultural now as they were political and economic. What is happening to our country? said an editorial in the Daily Express. Having been one of the most law-abiding countries in the world, a byword for stability, order, and decency, are we changing into something else? Where are we going? said an editorial in the Times. And I think this is perfectly captures the mood in the summer of 81. We may no longer have an empire. We may no longer be the workshop of the world. We may even have difficulty in paying our way. But one of the qualities upon which we've been accustomed to pride ourselves as British people has been the orderliness of our way of life. Now, says the Times, that too seems to have been exposed as a false dream. And you can sort of feel in those words the sense of angst and anxiety and a feel of sort of total collapse, I suppose, that culminates at the end of 1981 when you have the new SDP Liberal Alliance on 50.5% in the opinion polls, so apparently poised to become the new government, offering a break from the cycle of two-party failure. Mrs. Thatcher as the most unpopular prime minister since polling began, and the Tories in public polls on about 22, 23%, and some of their own private polls on about 16%. So at that point, the sort of iron lady apotheosis of Mrs. Thatcher would have seemed utterly unthinkable. Now, of course, it wasn't all doom and gloom. Um, there were shafts of light. Here you have two shafts of light. Sebastian Coe on the left, flying the flag, and Ian Botham, the incredible tests, 1981. So you've got sort of two sporting icons here. I think there's a thirst for heroes in the summer of 1981 that hadn't been there, hadn't been so strong um, previously. Of course, people always like heroes, but there's um, an, an almost a desperate appetite to claim heroism um, on the sporting field, something, anything to take away people's attention from the economic headlines. We need heroes, 
says another editorial in the Times. We need the sudden joyous satisfaction of enjoying a prize with thought far beyond our grasp. That's their reaction to Botham's heroics headingly against Australia. Now, the interesting thing about both these characters is they kind of, they have a nice ambiguity to them because both of them kind of face two ways. So Sebastian Coe was presented at the time as the sort of brideshead revisited, you know, that he's called Sebastian. And his, uh, the, the press would often sort of, they'd contrast him with his rival, Steve Ovette, and they would call him the tough, the tough and the tough. So Ovette was meant to be the tough, and Coe, who's actually pretty, grew up in Sheffield, it's not really a tough stamping ground, middle-class family and whatnot, but he was the tough anyway. Um, but what's interesting about Coe is for all this sort of floppy image that he had in the, uh, floppy-haired image, rather, in the early 1980s, he's a very forward-looking figure. He's an icon of modernity in some ways. So he's probably the most professional athlete at that point that Britain had ever produced. He and his dad, who was his coach, used scientific methods that previous athletes had not considered. His father even took a, specifically took a course in statistics so that he could plan Sebco's training regimes. And there's a sort of almost a kind of Thatcherite ruthlessness and intensity to the co-training regime that kind of makes it very plausible to see him later on as he became a conservative MP. And also a very conservative figure, of course, is Ian Botham. So in some ways, Botham feels, again, like a kind of harbinger of the future. He be later becomes a columnist for The Sun. As we know, he's a very keen sort of Brexiteer. Uh, he's somebody who seems to sort of anticipate this new populist patriotism of the 1980s and onwards. But he's also obviously a kind of quite a backward-looking figure. He's a very small-c um, conservative. You just can't get away from the sobriquet, the kind of beefy nickname. And I think you know, there's, there's some sort of probably unreadable PhD to be written about the significance of the beefy name with Ian Botham. Because, of course, since the 18th century, Britain had associated itself with roast beef in contrast to the sort of foppish flavours of continental Europe. And what one cricket writer wrote of Botham, Regency England would recognise him instantly as the man who could ride to hounds from dawn, fight 25 rounds bare knuckle of an afternoon, dine on a mountain of boiled mutton, roast beef, plum duff and cheddar cheese, washed down by ale and claret, and top it off with a bottle of brandy. A man who proclaims one Englishman worth ten scurvy foreigners. <laughs> uh, and that's, of course, a description that um, I think Ian Botham would immensely enjoy. But, and, of course, it's also one that a lot of his countrymen would recognise and would also enjoy. And that sort of little pen portrait and the, the Englishman and the scurvy foreigners <laughs> brings me to the, the sort of moment that defines the last quarter or so of my book, which is inevitably... The Falklands War. So this image is, was run across two pages in the tabloids a few days after the Argentines landed in the Falklands at the beginning of April 1982. And this is the sort of, if you like, you know, the, there'd, been, there'd been many photographs since the 1960s that people had used as symbols of what they saw as Britain's fall from grace. There'd been pictures of the Union Jack coming down in old colonies. There'd been pictures of you know, people working by candlelight during the three-day week. Or pictures of the bin bags on the streets or the padlocks on the graveyards during the winter of discontent. But this, I think, is the photograph that 
really seemed to capture that sense of Britain as a, a country that had failed and that was trapped in a cycle of decline because this is the Argentine occupiers surrounding the Royal Marine Garrison from Stanley who had held out overnight but eventually against an obviously superior far more numerous force had surrendered and humiliatingly were forced to lie face down on the ground at the feet of their conquerors while an Argentine cameraman took the picture for posterity. And not surprisingly, when this photograph got back to London, it caused enormous consternation in the press. And at the time, at that moment that the Argentines landed, when Mrs. Thatcher is still pretty unpopular, there, and there is this overwhelming sense of national humiliation, Parliament is recalled and sits on a Saturday for the first time since Suez. And there is this, there's this moment, I think, when you can see two parallel futures, two different, two sort of branching paths for Britain. On the Wednesday before the invasion, the Ministry of Defence got the intelligence that told them it was about to happen. And John Knott, the Defence Secretary, went to see Mrs Thatcher in her room in the House of Commons and told her that the Argentine fleet was on its way and there was nothing that could be done to stop them. You know, it's 8,000 miles away. You obviously can't get there in time and they're not going to turn back and all the rest of it. And she said to him, we have to get the islands back. And not said, we can't. You know, the MOD had done contingency plans and whatnot. But it, it was virtually impossible. And she said, you'll have to. And he said again, we can't. And it's at that point, famously, with this sort of Hollywood blockbuster timing that the door opened and Admiral Sir Henry Leach, the first sea lord who'd been inspecting ships at Portsmouth, burst in in his full admiral's uniform and Mrs. Thatcher kind of almost in desperation turns to him and says, what do you think? And Admiral Leach's reply, there are different versions, but effectively what he, sa he said, I think we should and I think we, we can and we must fight back. And he said, if we don't fight, Prime Minister, we shall find ourselves living in an entirely different country whose word will count for little. And that's the kind of turning point in the story because when Mrs. Thatcher heard that, that was what she wanted to hear. Britain could fight and Britain could win. And she, you know, the people who were there say she sort of smiled and said, jolly good. How long will it take you to get there? He said, three weeks. And she said, I think you mean three days. And he said, no, I mean three weeks. And from that point onwards, to, as it were, the die was cast. Of course, a lot of her own colleagues, it's often described as a Thatcherite war, but a lot of her own colleagues thought this was absolute lunacy. So the head of her policy unit, Sir John Hoskins, who'd been at her side through all the sort of economic experiment, he was pretty horrified by the Falklands campaign because he thought it could throw away everything they'd worked for. Sir Geoffrey Howe, her chancellor, the sort of, who'd been in the front of the car, as it were, with her since 1979, he didn't even think they should send the fleet at all as a symbol. He said, I don't think we should send it because we shouldn't really send it if we're not going to, you know, if we're not going to use it because he thought it was unthinkable that we would use it. And it's, you know, some of her officials say now a different prime minister would have found a reason not to send it or not to use it. But it was one of the distinctive things about her that it mattered that she was there rather than somebody else. Now, again, as with Mrs. Thatcher herself, we could spend hours talking about the Falklands War. I'll just say a couple of things about it. One is, I talked earlier on about um, memories of the Second World War. Remember how close this is, really, to the Second World War. In 1945, the Second World War had ended. 
1982, the Falklands War happens. They seem eons apart, partly because our, our images of them are so shaped by the difference between black and white and colour footage. So that one seems like ancient history and the other seems like it was only yesterday. But of course, the Second World War is very strong in people's minds. So Leach, for example, the admiral who told us she should do it, he'd lost his father in the Second World War. And in his, his, the loss of his father, I think, at Singapore, had weighed on his mind ever since when, as a boy, he'd heard the news. And he was he'd always been determined to live up to his father's sacrifice. And, uh, of course, the men who went to fight in the Falklands War had grown up watching things like the Dambusters and Dad's Army, all these endless World War II dramas, Colditz and all the rest of it, a secret army on British TV in the 1970s. So the war was very much in the air. And the war, the Second World War, also coloured how overseas observers, again, saw the campaign in the Falklands. So the Time magazine, you know, it's American, but it, there's the D-Day imagery, the sort of... It, it feels like they're kind of endorsing the general message. And, of course, the gotcha, the gotcha headline, the notorious headline that the Sun later rewrote, although it was too late because the paper had already gone out in the north of England. But actually, you know... You see the gotcha headline now and it uh, makes people cringe or feel ashamed or whatever. But the truth is that the Falklands War was unusually popular and it did see this upsurge of sort of patriotic populism of a kind that really hadn't been seen since the 1940s. David Owen, who actually in his memoirs goes out of his way to say he approved of the gotcha headline he said it's only wishy-washy metropolitan liberals who don't like that kind of thing. David Owen talks in his memoirs about how he'd been working on a building site during the Suez crisis in 1956 and of course he was then uh, in the Labour Party but not yet an MP and he said he was really struck by the difference between the men alongside whom he was working who were all for the Suez operation who couldn't see why Britain hadn't gone all the way to Cairo and the sort of people he knew from his medical studies, who were horrified by it and thought that Eden had lied to the country and that Britain had disgraced itself and all the rest of it. And that gulf is even more pronounced in the Falklands. So I think you have a, a majority, let's say, the, the polls show pretty convincingly, about eight, eight out of ten people who were immensely supportive of the war. From the very beginning, it's extraordinary how from the very start, you know, most people didn't know where the Falklands were. There's no doubt about that. You know, in opinion polls, people said that they're near Scotland somewhere. In, in Adrian Mole, in Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, Adrian's father runs in and says, oh, my God, the Argentines have invaded the Falklands. You know, Edinburgh is next. And they get out the atlas. And, uh, kind of, and, and that's, if you look at the memoirs of the, um, the paras and the marines and so on who served in the Falklands, so many of them say, we heard the news in the barracks. We said, where are they? You know, and... So-and-so said, uh, they're uh, somewhere near the Orkneys. But what's extraordinary is, that, is that, that sort of belligerence from the very beginning. So eight out of ten people supported the task force decision from the very beginning. Four out of ten people wanted to bomb Argentina itself pretty much straight away. Two out of ten people wanted to invade mainland Argentina, which was obviously never, never very likely. But then on the other side, you see, you have the other two out of... 10, who are appalled by the war in a way that I think is not true of any previous sort of political development since Suez. It's really striking to me 
from the sort of diaries and letters and whatnot, how there was a generation that had come of age in the 1960s for whom the war turned, it, it turned all their assumptions about Britain and its place in the world and its new direction on their head because they believed that Britain had left this behind. This was the sort of Victorian past and we would never again get up to this sort of um, business. There's a, there's a wonderful book called Authors Take Sides on the Falklands, which was published in the summer of 1982, which was modelled on a book called Authors Take Sides in the Spanish Civil War, published in the 1930s. And basically, they approached about 180 writers to ask what they thought of the, what should happen in the, in the Falklands crisis. Now, as anybody who knows writers will know, their opinions are no better and almost certainly far worse than most other people's. But the writers divided precisely as you would expect. So Kingsley Amis, for example, thinks that effectively we should nuke Buenos Aires tomorrow. Salman Rushdie, by contrast, says the war is, and I quote, xenophobic militarism, the politics of the Victorian nursery. If somebody pinches you, you take their trousers down and thrash them. And there's this sort of, what it is, is that Michael, the playwright Michael Frayn in 1963 had written of there being a huge divide in Britain, a kind of cultural divide between two tribes. He called them, he, he was talking about the middle classes, but I think it's true of Britain more generally. He said there were two tribes, the herbivores and the carnivores. So the herbivores, this is the 60s, read the Manchester Guardian and the News Chronicle and listened to the third programme, as it then was, and were great supporters of the BBC. And the carnivores were then readers of the Daily Express and believed, you know, you stood on your own two feet and two fingers to the rest of the world and all the rest of it. And, of course, what that anticipates and what the Falklands argument anticipates was so striking to me are the arguments we've been having for the last three years. Some of the cast, you know, Salman Rushdie, are the same. They're the same people taking the same positions in 2019, effectively, that they did in 1982. And that's what really sort of surprised me about the Falklands debate, is how, although the issues are completely different, how closely it seems to anticipate um, the debate that people have been having about the B word, which I might come back to right at the end. So, of course, we won, or Britain won, a 10-week campaign, a very swift, decisive victory. The one question that people always ask about the Falklands War is, did it win Margaret Thatcher the 1983 election? Did it rescue her from inevitable defeat? Funny enough, I actually think the answer is no. I think she would have won the 1983 election anyway, partly because of the divisions of the opposition, partly because Labour was so badly wounded from its years of infighting, from the fighting between Tony Benn and Dennis Healy, from the unpopularity of Michael Foote and so on, but also because well, one of the things we forget, we talk a lot about unemployment in the 1980s, well, what we forget is that at any given moment, pretty much nine out of 10 people were still in work. And for those nine out of 10, their living standards were higher in the early 80s than they had been in the 1970s. So quite often the focus when we talk about the 80s is towards the eye-catching places that suffered, the Sunderlands and Wolverhamptons and Liverpool particularly. I mean, Liverpool has become a kind of symbol of suffering in the, in the 80s. But one of the things I talk about in the book is about places that historians never really talk about, Milton Keynes, Basingstoke. No historian ever talks about Basingstoke. <laughs> places that were boom towns, where there were more jobs than there were people. Um, where the sort of a new roundabout was going up every week. And in those places, I think, they were the places where Mrs. Thatcher was going to win the 1983 election. And I think she would have won in those places, even without the Falklands. You can sort of actually see in the opinion polls 
the seeds of recovery as the economy was coming out of recession even before the war began. But what the war did, it didn't win at the election, I think, but it changed the mood. The Economist, Simon Jenkins and The Economist called it, at the time he said, there's been a cultural revolution. He said, it feels like the end of the 1960s. And I think that's right. And people on diff even from very different wings of the political spectrum said the same thing. So Tony Benn in his diary wrote at the end of the war, he wrote, I feel we're somehow at a real turning point in politics. I feel we've just come to the end of an era. And that summer, 82, Ben writes several times in his diary. He says, I feel that I've been in a dream world. I, I have been missing what's going on. Something has changed, and I must change to, to, to adapt to it. And his old friend turned ideological archenemy, Enoch Powell, wrote exactly the same kind of thing in a column in the Sunday Express at the end of the war. A change has come about in Britain, Powell wrote, we are ourselves again. And that we are ourselves again tells you a lot, I think, about the sort of self-image issue. And that's what I think it represented. That's why I think this period is so important and so consequential, because I think it marks a decisive change in our post-war national narrative. So that sense of sort of post-imperial decline, which had been so powerful in the, among the sort of political and cultural elite in the 1960s and 1970s, had not dissipated with Mrs. Thatcher's election in 1979. It, it had intensified. It had got far worse and reached a peak in the summer of 1981. And I think in that respect, Admiral Leach was right when he came into the room and he said, if we don't fight, we shall find ourselves living in a different country. If Britain had not fought, or if Britain had lost, if the Argentine, if the Argentines had the sense to invade later on in the year, when the weather would have been in their favour, if they, if their missiles had been better primed, if they just enjoyed better luck, then I think Britain's story from the 1980s to the present would be different. Because I think that image of Britain as a failing, declining country, a country that had to bid farewell to its kind of imperial past and move into an entirely new phase, that would have become far stronger. I think, in contrast to what Mrs. Thatcher had said, people would have seen Britain as just another European country had we lost or not fought in the Falklands. So, you know, when we're arguing about precisely where the road to Brexit began, I think we could do a lot worse than begin in the spring of 1982. Thank you. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.